Hello and welcome to the Annals of Internal Medicine Highlights Podcast for May 19th, 2020. I hope everyone listening is staying well during this very challenging time. Annals continues to expedite publication of pandemic-related articles, and all the articles are publicly available in a collection that is available at annals.org. I'll begin by highlighting those COVID-19-related articles published since our last podcast. There are quite a few of them. Researchers from the Pacific Northwest Evidence-Based Practice Center and Oregon Health and Science University searched multiple databases, including the World Health Organization Database of Publications on Coronavirus Disease and the MedArchive preprint server, for research on the epidemiology of and risk factors for coronavirus infection, SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV-1, and MERS-CoV in healthcare workers. They specifically looked for studies reporting incidents of or outcomes associated with coronavirus infections in healthcare workers and studies on the association between risk factors, demographics, healthcare worker role, exposures, environmental and administrative factors, and personal protective equipment and infection. 58 studies met inclusion criteria. 41 studies addressed burden of healthcare worker infections, 13 for SARS-CoV-2, 16 for SARS-CoV-1, and 12 for MERS-CoV. And 31 studies addressed risk factors for infection, 2 for SARS-CoV-2, 27 for SARS-CoV-1, and 2 for MERS-CoV. Not surprisingly, they found that healthcare workers experienced significant burdens from infection, but their risk for infection was decreased with the use of personal protective equipment and infection control training. Certain exposures, such as involvement in intubations, direct contact with infected patients, or contact with bodily secretions, were associated with an increased risk of infection. The strongest evidence on risk factors was on personal protective equipment use and decreased infection risk. The association was most consistent for masks, but also observed for gloves, gowns, and eye protection and hand washing. No study evaluated reuse of personal protective equipment. Because evidence on this issue is rapidly emerging, this review was designed as a rapid living review. An editorial that I wrote with several of my analyst colleagues explains what a rapid living review is. A rapid review simplifies some components of the review process to produce information in a timely manner, and a living review commits to ongoing evidence review and synthesis at pre-specified intervals. While the notion of rapid living reviews has been around for a number of years, the promise of this approach is relevant now more than ever as the medical community faces the unique challenges of keeping current with rapidly emerging evidence related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Rapid living reviews published in annals must specify in the methods any shortcuts that were taken to produce the initial review rapidly and the intervals and methods for the ongoing literature surveillance. When authors update their reviews and there is no new evidence, they will alert annals readers to this by posting a comment to the original review. When the authors identify new evidence, but that evidence does not alter the substance or strength of the original conclusions, They will summarize the new evidence in an alert that will be linked to the original article and appear in the letter section of the journal. When new evidence alters the substance or the strength of the initial conclusions, the authors will submit an updated review article to Annals. Annals seeks feedback from authors and readers as we experiment with publication of this new article type. The supply chain for U.S. healthcare is really five different supply chains. There are separate supply chains for pharmaceuticals, 
personal protective equipment, medical devices, medical supplies, and blood products. And each one has its own problems and opportunities for improvement. Next is a commentary that discusses the implications of COVID-19 on this system and what can be done going forward to ensure that our supply chains support healthcare providers. The next article provides insight into the pathological changes that are associated with fatal COVID-19. Researchers from the University Medical Center in Hamburg conducted autopsies on the first 12 consecutive COVID-19 positive fatalities at their medical center to study clinical findings with data from medical autopsy, virtual autopsy, and virological tests. They found a high incidence of thromboembolic events in patients with COVID-19, suggesting an important role of COVID-19-induced coagulopathy. Although pneumonia caused by severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 is a prominent feature of COVID-19, clinicians must also consider whether treatment for additional potential causes of community-acquired pneumonia are indicated. The co-chairs of the recently released American Thoracic Society and Infectious Disease Society of America Guideline for Treatment of Adults with Community-Acquired Pneumonia offer their interpretation of this guideline's application to the evaluation and treatment of patients in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic. Throughout the COVID-19 crisis, much attention has been devoted to the fraught question of how to allocate intensive care unit beds and mechanical ventilators if the supply of these resources is insufficient to, to provide them to all patients considered to be in need. In a commentary from the University of Pennsylvania, authors argue that the deployment of aggressive medical technology to win the war against the pandemic may represent the triumph of deeply human instincts over optimal policy. They believe that resources might be better directed at preventive measures than at stockpiling ventilators and other high technology interventions. In medicine, as in other disciplines, history can hold valuable lessons for contemporary issues. The next article is a very engaging history of medicine article that discusses how the imperative to do something in the context of a national emergency can lead to important scientific advances. Yet, the authors also illustrate with historical examples that caution is warranted because research conducted under high-pressure situations can also lead to false promises, ethical breaches, and even disastrous consequences. Next is a commentary on sexual health during the pandemic. Sexual health during the COVID-19 pandemic is a topic that has received little attention in the clinical community. The commentary offers clinicians practical guidance for addressing issues regarding sexual health and sexual activity for patients who are living through the pandemic. And staying with the topic of sex, the next article discusses preliminary data about sex and gender differences in outcomes of COVID-19. The authors believe that there is an urgent need for sex and gender-specific factors to be included in all COVID-19 research. The spread of COVID-19 has fueled a global search for effective treatments. Lopinavir-Ritinavir, a drug combination currently approved as antiretroviral therapy for adults with HIV infection, is one of the treatments being investigated and is the subject of more than 30 ongoing clinical trials. In the next article, researchers from Vienna report data that suggests that the in vivo levels of this drug in patients with COVID-19 are much lower than the levels shown to be active against SARS-CoV-2 in vitro. The authors have concerns that current dosing of lopinavir or ritinavir being investigated in trials is thus unlikely to be effective for treating patients with COVID-19. 
Some patients with COVID-19 progress rapidly to acute respiratory distress syndrome, septic shock, and multiple organ failure. Some experts attribute the sequence of events to a large increase in cytokines, something called cytokine storm, caused by the severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2, or a secondary infection by other organisms. Next is a brief report that provides some data to inform this theory by measuring cytokine levels in multiple body fluids over time from a patient with COVID-19 who developed ARDS, septic shock, and multiple organ failure. Concern exists that the use of angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers could increase susceptibility to infection with SARS-CoV-2 and disease severity in those who are infected. Paradoxically, others hypothesize that the effect of these medications on ACE receptors could mean that they have a role in the treatment of COVID-19. Annals published another rapid living review that synthesizes current evidence on ACE inhibitor and ARB use on patient outcomes in COVID-19. The authors systematically searched several databases from January 2003 to March 2020, as well as the WHO COVID-19 publication database for studies of patients with COVID-19, SARS, or MERS that examine the effects of ACE inhibitors or ARBs on the risk of viral infection, disease severity, and mortality. They identified a single study, a retrospective cohort study of 112 hospitalized patients with COVID-19 and pre-existing cardiovascular disease in China. The proportion of patients who had been on ACE inhibitors or ARBs was similar in the critically ill and non-critically ill groups and among patients who died or recovered. The authors conclude that despite biologic plausibility, studies are lacking that provide information about the use of these medications and patient outcomes in COVID-19. Yet there are known harms associated with withdrawal of ACE inhibitors or ARBs, particularly in patients with heart failure. Stay tuned, the authors plan to update this review as new evidence emerges. Tests for severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2, based on reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, or RT-PCR, are being used to rule out infection among high-risk persons, such as hospital exposures of patients and healthcare workers, but studies suggest that test sensitivity may be low. Next is a modeling study that estimates the false negative rate by day since exposure to infection based on pooled data from previously published studies on RT-PCR sensitivity of upper respiratory tract samples of persons who are ultimately confirmed to have COVID-19. The results suggest that care must be taken in interpreting RT-PCR tests for SARS-CoV-2 infection, particularly early in the course of infection, when using these results as a basis for removing precautions intended to prevent onward transmission. If clinical suspicion is high, clinicians should not rule out infection on the basis of RT-PCR alone. During the pandemic, it may be safer for patients who need parenteral therapy, such as parenteral antibiotics or chemotherapy, to get home infusion therapy rather than going to infusion sites in healthcare settings and risking exposure to SARS-CoV-2. In the next article, authors from Washington University in St. Louis proposed changes to Medicare payment policy, which would make provision of home infusion more feasible. And on May 13th, Annals published the American College of Physicians' recommendations about the use of chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine alone or in combination with azithromycin as prophylaxis for or treatment of COVID-19. 
Based on a review of currently available evidence, the ACP recommends against the use of these drugs as prophylaxis for COVID-19 or to routinely treat COVID-19. In light of known harms and very uncertain evidence of benefit, if clinicians choose, after shared and informed decision-making with patients and their families, to treat hospitalized COVID-19 patients with chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine alone or in combination with azithromycin, they should do so in the context of a clinical trial. ACP plans to update these recommendations as new evidence becomes available, and those updates will be available on annals.org. Among the many other challenges of treating patients hospitalized with COVID-19 is the fact that the prohibition of hospital visitors makes it necessary that communication about serious illness decision-making must occur over the phone or web rather than in person. Next is a commentary by palliative care experts at University of California, San Francisco, that provides practical guidance for meaningful conversations about serious illness using telecommunication. The clinical pathologic basis for morbidity and mortality with SARS-CoV-2 infection is not well understood. In another autopsy-based study, researchers from Linz, Austria, report the clinical and autopsy findings of patients who died of COVID-19. They report that COVID-19 predominantly involves the lungs, causing diffuse alveolar damage and leading to acute respiratory insufficiency. Death may be caused by the thrombosis observed in segmental and subsegmental pulmonary arterial vessels, despite the use of prophylactic anticoagulation. I encourage you to go to annals.org to view the pathological images that accompany this article. Finally, recent pandemic-related material also includes several Annals Graphic Medicine articles, an Annals Consul Guys episode that reviews the use of hydroxychloroquine over time and in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, and an Annals on Call podcast that addresses clinical reasoning around testing for COVID-19. During the pandemic, it is important to remember that our patients continue to have health issues unrelated to SARS-CoV-2. So I'll now let you know about some recent articles on other topics. On May 12th, we published an article that reports a randomized controlled trial of acupuncture for patients with postprandial distress syndrome. Postprandial distress syndrome is characterized by bothersome early fullness after eating and upper abdominal bloating and places a substantial burden on patients in the healthcare system because of its high prevalence and the chronic relapsing nature of its symptoms. Researchers from Beijing University randomly assigned 278 Chinese patients with postprandial distress syndrome to 12 sessions of acupuncture or sham acupuncture over four weeks, and then compared the proportion of patients in each group who reported extreme improvement or improvement in their GI symptoms, as well as the proportion of patients who experienced complete resolution of the symptoms. They found that a significantly higher portion of patients in the acupuncture group experienced overall improvement or elimination of their symptoms than in the sham acupuncture group. The improvement was sustained for at least 12 weeks after the final acupuncture treatment, and there were no serious adverse events among the study patients. The next article is about another painful GI condition, narcotic bowel syndrome. Narcotic bowel syndrome is a chronic pain syndrome that occurs with opioid use and persists as opioid treatment is continued or escalated. More than half of patients with this syndrome who undergo opioid detoxification return to opioid use within a few months because of continued pain. 
In a brief report published online on May 12th, researchers from the University of Rochester reported the case of a 41-year-old woman who had been taking fast-acting opioids for pain for eight years with continued episodes of abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and required hundreds of hospital visits. When other causes of pain had been ruled out and all the treatments failed, the clinicians treated her narcotic bowel syndrome with buprenorphine and naloxone. The patient reported greatly improved abdominal pain over the first few days, and her pain resolved entirely after one week. She had no further episodes of vomiting, and her nausea resolved almost entirely after one month. Peyton foramen ovale, or PFO, is a congenital right-to-left intraarterial shunt that is increasingly recognized as a major cause of cryptogenic stroke. Recent clinical trials and systematic reviews showed efficacy for PFO closure to eliminate the shunt in preventing recurrent stroke, particularly in patients with a large shunt. However, in clinical practice, residual shunt may be observed in up to 25% of patients after PFO closure, but its long-term influence on stroke recurrence is unknown. Another May 12th article shed light on this issue. Researchers from Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School followed 1,078 consecutive patients with PFO attributable cryptogenic stroke for up to 11 years to investigate the association of residual shunt after PFO closure with the incidence of recurrent stroke in TIA. After transcatheter closure, each patient had a transthoracic echocardiogram with intravenous saline injection to detect intracardiac right-to-left shunting at 24 hours and at one in six months and then annually. The researchers found residual shunt in 22.5% of patients with about 40% of shunts being moderate or large. Follow-up which averaged about 3.5 years revealed a significantly higher incidence of recurrent transient ischemic attack or stroke in patients with residual shunt, particularly if that shunt was moderate or large. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Bill Kuzmal, Annals Associate Editor for Cardiology, writes, quote, For many patients with PFO, closing the hole already makes sense. Perhaps with newer, simpler techniques and less bulky implants, the risk-benefit equation in this group of patients can be tilted even further toward permanent stroke prevention, end quote. Major depressive disorder is a common mental disorder that affects an estimated 16.2 million adults and 3.1 million adolescents in the United States. Yet there remains a lack of uniformity in both measurements and monitoring for depression, both in clinical practice and in research settings. Efficient research approaches are necessary to capitalize on big data approaches to harmonize across settings. Connecting data across registries and other data collection efforts would yield a robust national data infrastructure to help address questions regarding treatments and outcomes for depression. The next article describes an effort to develop a minimum set of patient and clinician-relevant standardized outcome measures that can be collected in depression registries and clinical practice. The panel identified a minimum set of 10 broadly relevant measures in the categories of survival, clinical response, events of interest, patient-reported outcomes, and resource utilization. The harmonized measures represent a minimum set of clinician and patient-relevant outcomes that are appropriate for use in depression research and clinical practice. Observational studies show that a healthy diet is linked to a reduced risk for cardiovascular events, leading many to advocate for stronger public policy to promote healthy food choices. Critics, however, point to a dearth of evidence to support the hypothesis that adopting a healthy diet directly reduces cardiovascular injury or is effective for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. 
In an article published online on May 19th, researchers from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center report a study that used data and stored serum specimens for 326 participants of the original DASH trial to compare the effects of diets rich in fruits and vegetables with the typical American diet in their effects on cardiac damage, cardiac strain, and inflammation in middle-aged adults without pre-existing cardiovascular disease. They found that after eight weeks, participants in both the fruits and vegetables and the DASH diet groups had significantly lower concentrations of the biomarkers for subclinical cardiac damage and strain compared with the control group on the typical American diet. These associations did not differ between the DASH and fruit and vegetable diets, and none of the diets affected HSCRP, a marker of inflammation. The authors hypothesized that dietary factors common to both the DASH and fruit and vegetable diets, such as higher amounts of potassium, magnesium, and fiber, may partially explain the observed effects. These findings strengthen recommendations for the DASH diet or increased consumption of fruits and vegetables as a means of optimizing health. Osteoporotic fracture is a known serious complication of anticoagulants among patients with atrial fibrillation. It is unclear whether anticoagulant type is associated with the degree of risk. Researchers from the University of Hong Kong and University College London Strategic Partnership Fund studied an electronic health record database for patients newly diagnosed with atrial fibrillation between 2010 and 2017 who received a new prescription for warfarin or direct oral anticoagulant to compare risk for osteoporotic fracture between anticoagulants. After 24 months of follow-up, the data showed that the direct oral anticoagulant use was associated with a lower risk for fracture than warfarin use. No differences were seen in all head-to-head -head comparisons between the various direct oral acting anticoagulants at 24 months. According to the authors, these findings may help inform the benefit-risk assessment when choosing between anticoagulants. In a brief report published online on May 19th, researchers from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and Harvard Medical School used all of the 2019 CMS-specified quality measures for the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System in the U.S. program to determine the proportion of quality measures that were potentially appropriate for patients receiving home-based medical care, and that included denominator codes for such care. Of the measures potentially usable by clinicians caring for homebound older adults, only half of them could actually be used because the CMS-specified measures didn't include home visit codes in the measure specifications. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that homebound patients remain an invisible population to key stakeholders, including quality measure developers and CMS. They say this is unfortunate because strong evidence exists that improving care for frail older adults, particularly those who are homebound, can reduce preventable health care costs. Finally, is a commentary that poses the question, is it time to more fully address teaching about religion and spirituality in medicine? That brings me to the end of this podcast. I hope you will go to annals.org to take a closer look at some of the new material I've mentioned. A reminder that there is a special collection of pandemic-related articles available on annals.org. If you would like to be alerted by email about newly published annals articles, you can register for alerts by going to the link under services at the very bottom of the annals.org homepage. I hope you will return for our next podcast on June 2nd. Until then, stay well. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.